With much of Canaan conquered, settlement ought to be straightforward. Nine and a half tribes divvy up the land to the west of the river, while two and a half settle east. The Israelites really are now living the dream, or at least fulfilling the promise made to their ancestors Abraham, Isaac and Jacob centuries earlier. All the people need to do is farm, fish, clear forest, build houses and whack the occasional Canaanite tribe should they wish to extend their territory. Yet no sooner are the tribes settled east of the Jordan than they really do appear to have gone rogue. My name is Chaz Bayfield and this is Holy Bible episode 55, Thorns in Your Eyes. Hello Bible Travellers, thank you for joining me. Season 6 is well underway and the excitement is about to pick up again. First though, a few pieces of housekeeping. This is not a Bible study or meditation. It's actually the Bible with the religious finger wagging taken out. You won't be told how to live your lives, simply left to make your own minds up about the world's best-selling book. I'm not a priest, I'm an advertising creative director, but I do like a good story. Plus, the Old Testament part of the Bible underpins three major world religions, so the Bible is clearly a book with a lot to sell. On that note... Mindful of the rule given to Israel by Moses, Joshua ensures that there are safe havens where people who have accidentally killed someone can run to. In an age that predates health and safety by several millennia, unintentional death appears to be an occupational hazard. As such, Joshua is keen to demarcate the cities where anyone who has accidentally killed someone can hole up before their trial without fearing vengeance from any close family member of the deceased. Here in the book of Joshua, readers learn that the killer must stand at the city gate and tell the elders exactly what happened. The fugitive is then allowed into the city and given a place to stay. However furious the avenger of the dead person is who comes after them, the elders are not allowed to surrender the killer. Only a fair trial or the death of the high priest can end their enforced exile. Six cities in all are set aside for this purpose and are reasonably evenly spread throughout Israel. At this point, the heads of the Levite families approach Joshua and their high priest Eleazar reminding their leaders of Moses' promise to them that they would be given places to live. In all, 48 cities and their surrounding pasture lands distributed around Israel are allocated to the three Levite clans. These include Caleb city of Hebron, Gibeon, the home of the early Canaanite tribe who fooled Israel into letting them live, and Ramoth-Gilead, where King Ahab of Israel later dies. The book of Joshua describes how God brings peace, how none of Israel's enemies can touch them or withstand them, and that none of God's promises failed. As invasions go, it's a remarkable one. Most rampaging armies continue to grab territories until they have a vast empire and all the wealth that accompanies it. Yet Israel only conquers the land promised to Abraham. No more, no less. The way the conquest is described makes it very clear to its Jewish readers that God is in charge and that it is only with his assistance and divine firepower that all this has happened. They now know that he has honoured his promise to them and it is theirs to maintain or throw away completely. 
Animal lovers get particularly excited when archaeology or other historical records tally with what is written in the good book. According to the Washington Post, a significant number of new agricultural villages appeared in the central hill country of Canaan in around 1200 BC. Archaeological remains of nearly 100 of these villages have been found so far, all built on land that had previously been uninhabited. Both the architecture of the houses and the pottery that has been found are different from that discovered in earlier Canaanite periods. Grateful for the assistance given by the tribes who wish to settle back east, Joshua gathers together the leaders of Reuben, Gad and East Manasseh. He's clearly impressed that these tribes have kept true to their word and have fought tirelessly along with the rest of Israel to help their western cousins settle into their new home. He sends them back across the river but reminds them to keep true to God's laws. After all, a little like a coal that drops out of the fire goes cold, or a slice of bread left out of the bag goes stale, it's easy to see how those living on the margins of God's community might slack off the pace, especially as they now have a river to cross to reach the tabernacle in Shiloh. The eastern tribes arrive at their own corner of the promised land, loaded down with livestock, treasure and other spoils of war which they are told to divide among themselves. However, as they approach the river, they construct a giant altar. No one has authorised this, let alone Joshua, and immediately the rest of Israel comes to the same conclusion. The eastern tribes have succumbed to pagan worship and have gone rogue. The western tribes gear up for war against their eastern neighbours and, led by the ever-zealous Phineas, their tribal chieftains storm across the river and demand answers. They cannot fathom how the eastern tribes dare risking the same punishment that fell on Israel when its men succumbed to the wiles of the pagan women from Moab and began worshipping their gods. Back then, God sent a plague and Moses was crystal clear about the kind of horrors that will fall on the nation if its worship of God is compromised. Listeners can swat up on this lurid event in Israel's history by heading back to episode 40. If one tribe fails... Vengeance falls on them all, the chiefs tell their eastern leaders. As they see it, there is one altar to God in Israel, at Shiloh. Any other altars are a sure sign of rebellion and defile the whole country, just as Achan siphoning off Jericho's plunder cut Israel off from God and cost them their next battle, an adventure told in episode 53. The response from the tribes of Reuben, Gad and Manasseh is hugely reassuring. The altar is purely symbolic and is not for use. It stands as a witness to their faith so that future generations will know that they follow God. It is a replica of the altar at Shiloh, not a replacement, they assure their western brothers and sisters. The eastern tribes claim that God knows this and they tell the delegation from the west that they welcome God's punishment if the truth is different. The suggestion is that the eastern tribes worried that future generations in the west would criticise them for being so far away and might doubt their commitment to Israel. The west might also worry that those from the east may persuade their descendants to turn away from God. No burnt offerings or other sacrifices will be made here, they say. Instead, the altar will stand as a witness that tells those in the east that they are part of God's family and those in the west that their eastern comrades have not forgotten God. 
Reassured that the faith of the eastern tribes has not gone off the boil, Phineas shares his confidence that God is with them and thanks them for not fast-tracking Israel's destruction. He and his cohort of chieftains return across the river with the good news that all Israel is still singing from the same hymn sheet. Just so that everyone is clear, the eastern tribes name their altar a witness between us that the Lord is God. Those who question the truth of the Bible see a major plot hole in this story. If Joshua needed a miracle to cross the Jordan to get into Canaan, the question is, how did the eastern tribes get back to their land? And how did Phineas and his chieftains get across for their showdown? With no bridges, there must have been a crossing point. The most likely is at the ford at Beth Barra, not far from Jericho. Also, the Bible reports that the river was in flood at the time of Joshua's crossing, making any traverse that didn't involve swimming or boats impossible. The battles have ended, settlement has been a success, and peace reigns in Israel. Years pass until one day Joshua summons the elders, tribal chiefs, judges and other officials. The thrust of Joshua's message is that time may pass, but the rules are still the rules. By now Joshua is very old and he reminds the men of all the incredible things they have seen God do on their behalf and how he fought for them against the kingdoms of Canaan. He impresses on them how the land was divided so that they all have a homeland that can be passed on through their families for generations, adding that God will continue to push out any enemy whose land he wants them to annex. Strength is needed, he says, if they are to remain true to God and not have their heads turned by local gods. They need to cling on to God, suggesting effort and intention rather than merely a relaxed acknowledgement that he is nearby. Joshua wants them to remember the incredible victories they have won against seemingly insurmountable odds. They have frequently been outnumbered by enemy armies, but with God behind them, one of you routes a thousand, he tells them. For this to continue, he warns, they must be sure they continue to love God and only God. Making alliances with their neighbours, and worse still, intermarrying with local Canaanites, is a sure way to invoke God's wrath, the Israelites are told. Do this, and God will no longer drive away their enemies. They will become snares and traps, the equivalent of whips on their backs and thorns in their eyes. The Israelites will perish if they intermix with non-Jews, Joshua tells them. The nation of Israel is to remain spiritually pure. This is another chin-scratcher. Israel has never been racially pure. Foreigners have always been welcome, provided that they also worship God. What the rule might mean is that once a person has committed to believing in God, they are not to cavort with pagans, least of all intermarry with them. Israel's leader knows that he is about to die, but he wants his people to realise that not one of God's promises to them has failed. And, just as the good times have come their way, the bad times can come just as easily should they violate the very clear house rules that they have been given. Joshua then calls Israel's chieftains to the West Manasseh city of Shechem for one final briefing. Joshua's choice of Shechem as a gathering place is an effective piece of theatre. Shechem is where Abraham camped when he came to Canaan centuries earlier, and this is the land which the book of Genesis promises will be given to Abraham's descendants. Joshua makes it clear that the men are in the presence of God before giving them a history lesson. 
He explains how Abraham's family originally lived beyond the river Euphrates, some 600 miles to the east, and worshipped other gods. He tells them how God took Abraham, led him here to Shechem, and gave him many descendants. He gave him Isaac, and to Isaac he gave Jacob and Esau. Esau settled in what later became Edom, while Jacob went down to Egypt. The timeline jumps forward by around 400 years as Joshua recounts how God sent Moses and Aaron to confront Pharaoh, how he afflicted Egypt with awful plagues and brought his own people safely out. Some of the Israelites saw with their own eyes how God rescued his people from the chariots of the pursuing Egyptians by drowning them under the Red Sea. He reminds them of their more recent history, the years in the wilderness and the slow journey to the land east of the Jordan. Joshua reminds them of Balaam's refusal to curse the Israelites on behalf of Moab's king Balak and how God gave them victory over this particular enemy. He talks them through their victory at Jericho and how God, not their own military prowess, allowed them to win battle after battle. In Joshua's words, God gave his people a land which they had not cultivated, cities they did not build, and vineyards and olive groves which they did not plant. Their side of the contract is to serve God faithfully. All effigies and idols brought with them from the east must be destroyed. In a boldly confident move, Joshua suggests that anyone who has a completely different worldview is welcome to choose their own gods. The sense is that Israel's God is so amazing and Joshua's cell has been so persuasive that anyone who chooses any other God can't be of sound mind. For the record, Joshua tells the men that he and his family will serve God. Knowing the consequences on themselves and their nation should paganism gain even the smallest foothold, the men acknowledge that God has been their constant protector throughout their long journey from Egypt. They too will serve him, they tell their leader. Whether playing devil's advocate or because he simply has no faith in his people, Joshua tells them that they are all talk. God is holy, he says. He is jealous. He will not forgive those who choose to direct their worship at other gods, and he will bring disaster on them. Israel's leaders are adamant they will serve God. They are their own witnesses, Joshua says, ordering them to throw out any religious paraphernalia that has nothing to do with God. Again, the people vow to serve and obey God, at which point Joshua draws up an official covenant agreement between them and God. He runs through Israel's laws so that they are all very clear what they are signing up to, then writes everything down in what the Bible refers to as the book of the law of God. To mark the occasion, he takes a large stone and sets it up under an oak near a spot sacred to the Jews. Ever since Abraham set up camp near the great oaks of Mamre, trees have played a significant role in the Bible. Perhaps in an age before high buildings, a great tree which had stood for centuries was a well-known, large and easily identifiable landmark. It's unclear why Joshua chooses the tree, which feels a more pagan location than Shiloh, where the tabernacle has been set up. It might be that this is such a solemn occasion that Joshua has had the Ark of the Covenant brought here, and that the Jews' most sacred artefact has been placed near the tree. The stone marks everything that Israel has seen and heard, he tells his listeners, and it will stand as a witness should anyone go back on their word. The men are then dismissed and sent back to their tribal lands. 
his work done, Joshua dies aged 110 and is buried in the hill country of Ephraim where he was given land. The book of Joshua explains how Israel remains true to its words in the years after its leader's death. Despite being effectively leaderless, the torch of faith is carried by the tribal elders who experienced everything that God had done to help them. The bones of Joseph that had been brought to Canaan from Egypt are now buried at Shechem on the plot of land bought by his father Jacob after his happy reconciliation with Esau. It's appropriate then that this land lies within East Manasseh, as Manasseh was Joseph's son. Eleazar the high priest also dies, and though the assumption is that his son Phineas will succeed him in the role, no mention is made of this. Finally, after 40 years of wandering and a campaign of heavy fighting against the indigenous Canaanite kings, a territory that includes modern-day Lebanon, Israel, Palestine, northwest Jordan and some western areas of Syria, has been settled by the descendants of Abraham. Surprisingly, Joshua was not told to hand over command of Israel to any heir apparent, nor is any mention made of a wife or family, which is unusual for an Old Testament biblical leader. Joshua's death leaves Israel leaderless, with only the rules and regulations written down by Moses and then Joshua, and a single standing stone next to an oak tree to remind them to honour their God. With that, the book of Joshua ends. Canaan has been settled, and the people at least know how they are supposed to behave. But without a strong leader, there's every chance that things will unravel completely. All that is next. Holy Bible is written and produced by me, Chas Bayfield, with music by Michael Old and John Hawkins Music. Cover art is by Lisa Goff. Please do follow us on Twitter or Facebook. Search Holy Bible, W-H-O-L-L-Y, Holy, B-U-Y-A-B-L-E, Bible. And if you like what you're hearing, please give us a five-star rating on whatever channel you're listening. Thank you.